Welcome to another edition of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. I wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who took the time to send some kind messages after my first episode. I'm really excited about this podcast and to see where it will go. So if you're new and just tuning in today, thank you. On In the Ring, I'll be covering pretty much every facet of the horse sales, breeding, pedigrees, and a whole lot more. So I can't wait for you all to hear today's episode. I have a really diverse group of guests, and we're also adding a little international flair this time, too. You know, I was thinking if I'm going to do a sales and pedigree podcast, I really have to cover the international sales as well, since that's such a major part of the industry. The Magic Millions Gold Coast yearling sale just took place, and it really sets the tone for the rest of the year. So that was a a big topic on today's show, and it's actually a little bit of a learning experience for me too, because I admit I'm not as familiar with some of the bloodstock in Australia. So starting things off with uh, some recap of the Keeneland January sale, then we're into a recap of the yearling sales in Australia, and then we're looking ahead a little bit. So stay tuned. There's a lot coming up. So pleased to welcome in a special guest today, trainer Phil Schoenthal, who I've gotten to know in a little bit uh, in my time visiting Laurel Park and some of the races at Maryland. And Phil does a great job as a trainer, but has been very busy at the sales recently. Just wrapped up Keeneland January. And Phil, first of all, thank you for taking the time today. And second of all, congratulations on all of the purchases. You've been pretty busy at the sales recently. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun to go to the horse sale when you're when you're loaded for bear as opposed to trying just to, you know, find one or two you can afford. So it's, it's been a lot of fun for sure. You've been picking up a particular brood mares uh, with Matt Dorman and Determined Stud. Tell me a little bit about Matt and your relationship with him and his his new quest to, to start a broodmare band in Maryland. Uh, Matt's a great guy. Uh, I've known him for probably uh, 13 or 14 years. We were introduced uh, by a, another client of mine that was friends with him, and um, you know Matt has started a company that was purpose driven, and it has worked very very hard to grow that company. And when we met, he was interested in uh, getting involved in the ownership side of things. He'd grown up going to the Preakness with his dad, and had always been a gambler and a fan, and was at the point in his life when he could afford to have some racehorses. Uh, so he, he talked to me about that and, you know, I, I always do with new clients. I say, look, you know, before you jump into the water, you should just put your toe in first and see what it's like. And, uh, I sold him, I think 5% of a $5,000 claimer that I had at the time, uh, just to have the experience of, of what ownership was like and, and see the bills and, and all that sort of stuff. And that horse actually won two or three races and we had a lot of fun and he started going to the sales at that point. We, we claimed a couple of horses, he had some success doing that, and he started going to the horse sales. And um, every year, you know, he, he'd buy one, two, three horses at uh, Timonium, just focusing on Maryland breads, you know, in the twenty to $50,000 range. A couple of years, he bought five, six, seven, um, you know, and, and was getting involved in the game. And we, we had a lot of success over the years, had a lot of really good runners and stakes quality horses. Uh, but this past year, uh, as his company grew, um, I guess he, he had an offer that he couldn't refuse and uh, decided it was time to punch the button and, and sell his company. Uh, so that happened in August. And his his next focus was 
was getting involved in the racehorse business. Uh, he had purchased the uh, land for his farm a couple of years ago. The opportunity came up uh, to purchase the land, and he did. Um, and so he is he is busy right now developing and building out uh, Determined Stud, which is in Boyd's, Maryland, in the northwest uh, Montgomery County there in Maryland. Um, and it'll be ready for horses, we're hoping, sometime late summer, early fall, uh, but he's, it was just crops and cattle. So he's building barns and putting in fence and he had seed experts out all last year and they, they guess, you know, do whatever they do for the ground. They killed off the fescue and planted the right kind of mix and have been fertilizing that. So all that part's been underway, uh, but with the sale of his company, it was time to, time to uh, really ramp up the investment. And so he, you know, he, he purchased uh, 11 yearlings at the yearling sales and, I think we, I think we're up to 20, 23 and a half broodmares now. So. Fantastic. I, like I said, you guys have been busy and I've not met Matt, but I've really enjoyed reading about him and just kind of seeing his philosophy and the research and the work that he's done. And it's a, it's a daunting step to create a broodmare band uh, in horse racing. I think it's a daunting step to get into any facet of horse racing, but particularly into the breeding side of things. And uh, I mean, it seems like he's really doing things the right way. And just tell me a little bit about what it's like, you know, being a part of that and creating some something in your home state of Maryland as well. Well, it's, it's, it's been great. You know, I, I think that initially, um, you know, Matt's a very focused person. Uh, he's a very organized person. He, he's a businessman and, you know, he has spreadsheets and, and models for everything. And I think initially he was intent on, you know, buying two or three broodmares a year for four or five, six years. Um, but, you know, the, the, with, with the sale of his company, I think that there were some some uh, capital gains tax incentives for for kind of spending some of that money this past calendar year, as well as I think he took the philosophy of, hey, look, you know, if we're going to do this, let's just jump in and, and buy the whole band now so that we can have immediate income with sales of weanlings next year and, and just kind of get it up and running and, and see if it works rather than kind of prolong it over four or five years in the building process. Uh, so that was kind of his, his philosophy there. Uh, he kind of surprised me along the way. Um, you know, he's, he's, a, a very smart guy and, you know, he, he kind of, uh, you know, holds his cards close to his chest and for good reason. Um, but you know, I, I went down to this last horse sale and I was under the impression we were going to spend, you know, four or $500,000 on one or two if we found them, you know, and, and, uh, he blew right past that, and I was getting ready to pack my bags to, to, to come home. And he said, "Well, no, let's just keep on shopping." Okay, you know, and, and that's kind of the way we work. You know, he he uh, you know kind of uh, lets us know as we go as far as as far as what we're purchasing and 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 when. And as far as the horse sales themselves, you know, my my job is to create the short lists, um, and you know, we we go over the short lists, and I I tell him, you know, what. And it's not just me. It's it's kind of a team of, of mm-hmm. myself, Scott Mallory, and David Wade. Uh, but creating a short list and then going over that with him and explaining why uh, we like these particular horses. And then, you know, we, we give him kind of a, a, a range of what we think, you know, a certain mare yearling should bring as far as a good value price. If we can get it for price X, then we're real happy with, with a good buy. And then he takes that information into the ring and, 
does what he wants to. And sometimes he, he goes way past the number and, and sometimes he's more conservative and, you know, we, we, we never really know until the hammer falls if it, if it's us or not, but uh, more times than not, it was us this year. So it was, it was fun. Yeah, so some excitement for you in the ring as well. And um, yeah, definitely, I would imagine a, a little bit more spent at the Keeneland January sale than anticipated. And I talked last week on my podcast, particularly about uh, the dispersal of Paul Pompa. And you bought a couple uh, with Matt from the dispersal, Paul Pompa, one of them being grade one place off topic, who I understand is going to continue racing for you. Yeah, we're hoping so. You know, her, her last couple of races, uh, you know, were, were kind of off off form for her. And, uh, you know, we, we had we had the understanding that, you know, that there was some physical issues going on with her last year that maybe, you know, some, some bone bruising or, or whatnot. She had a little thing with her shin. Uh, so she's had the winter off and, and she looked great. She's been jogging at Windstar. And I think, uh, you know, we were happy with the price that we paid for if she was going to be a broodmare, but the allure of possibly putting a nice runner into the barn immediately uh, rather than waiting for some of these yearlings to develop uh, was, was attractive as well. And so we're going to see if she can get back to her better form this year. And if not, then we'll go ahead and breed her next year. Also from the Pompa dispersal uh, was Sustained, who's already been uh, a good producer in her own right, as well as being good on the track. I mean, tell me a little bit as well to you what it means buying from a dispersal from somebody like Paul Pompa. I don't know if you knew him personally, but of course, a well-respected name in the industry. And sometimes with these dispersals, there are some horses that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to have access to, it seems. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Both with his dispersal and with the Samson dispersal, you know, that I think that for me, the, the only, uh, I did not know Paul Papa personally, obviously he's had tremendous success in his program, you know, so you have to uh, pay him his respect in that regard. Uh, a lot of times, some of these mares that are carrying their third or fourth foal and they end up at the horse sale, you kind of have to wonder, you know, are they just dumping this mare before her first couple of foals race because they know their their donkeys are ugly or slow or crook- crooked or whatever, you know what I mean? Uh, but with it, with a dispersal sale in that, in that scenario, you're not really worried about it because it's a dispersal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, so it's a little bit of security there. The the mare that we bought, the uh, her name was Sustained. Uh, she's already a you know grade three producer, so th- there wasn't too much concern there. And she was by Warfront, and and Matt's a big fan of Warfront, um, and it made a lot of sense. And I thought we bought her for a, for a very reasonable price. Uh, felt like there was a lot more value of what we bought in January than what we paid in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were thrilled to get her and thrilled with the price and, and looking forward to having her. I love the point that you bought, brought up as far as the dispersals are concerned with having a little bit more security, knowing where the mare is coming from and not that it's kind of a give up situation because you certainly can run into that as well. And I guess that, that, that brings me to the next uh mayor in Southern Ring, who was part of the Samson dispersal, and obviously in iconic colors, iconic just industry that they've built over the years in Samson Farm, had to be pretty special buying into those bloodlines as well. Oh, no, for certain. And, and that started way back in the yearling sales. We bought a bought a yearling from Samson uh, at the yearling sale and uh, got to meet uh, Tom's Wizzle, the farm manager, and, and at this sale met, met the farm manager and general manager. And uh, you know, I, going back to my younger days of, of just being a fan, you know, and, and cheering for Dance Smartly and Wilderness Song and even Dances with Ravens and, and a lot of these horses, just kind of the awe of, you know, hey, wow, this is Samson Farms. And uh, 
then in the uh, at the Fazer November sale, they had shared account there who they bought. Um, but I was a huge fan of shared account, obviously from Maryland, you know, and, uh, you know, we, we went and looked at her. I think we were actually the underbidder on her uh, trying to get her. Uh, but, you know, they pulled her out for us to look at. And obviously we were serious buyers. But I said to Tom, I said, do you mind if I can be a fanboy for a minute? Just get a picture with her, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he laughed and he stayed in touch. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it's just neat to feel like you're 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 buying into a legacy from the, you know, history of the game, you know. Absolutely. Definitely is a legacy. And and while it's a shame to kind of see the end of an era, so to speak, I think it's exciting with some of these dispersals to see those those carried on and, and grown and kind of developed within the industry, too. And you mentioned uh, what you had going on at November, too. And, and I thought um, Style and Grace, she was an expensive mare that you had purchased as well. But what really struck me was that I, I read that that had been the big draw about her too was that she was in bold, a city of light who I, I had spoken with the lane's end about last week and him being a freshman stallion. And tell me a little bit about what you've, you've learned about him and what the draw is of being able to kind of get access to that early on as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, city of light, obviously, uh, you know, at the end of his campaign was the most dominant horse in the country. Um, you know, and, uh, obviously a very attractive stud prospect. I'd never seen him in person until we were at Lane's End during the November sale. And when they brought him out, I mean, he was just kind of, for all the stallions they had there, he was just, appeared to be a man among boys, really. I mean, just a really attractive horse. Um, and Matt, uh, you know, he, he's, he owns a share in Quality Road. Uh, you know, obviously he, he's a son of Quality Road. So, sure. you know, it was just a, a lot of attraction there. You know, I, when you give that much money for a mare, you know, you'd preferably like to see him in full to one of the, you know, possibly more expensive proven stallions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but City of Lights, I, I believe, will still be attractive in the sales ring by the time that, that one in her belly uh, comes out. But she was a, 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 a big, handsome mare, you know, with, with a deep pedigree and, and uh, you know, Matt chased her and got her. So it was it was fun. And when you're at the sales there's obviously different things that you're going to be looking at for the types of horses that you're buying a mare in full a racing prospect, a two-year-old, a yearling. What is it like in preparation for the sales? As you talked a little bit about creating shortlists, what are some of the processes or, or steps that you take in order to create a shortlist at a sale? Uh, well, it's, it's basically the same process, uh, no matter what kind of horse you're buying. Uh, obviously a little bit different with, with mares as opposed to winnings or yearlings, but uh, for me personally, um, you know, I, I really prefer to buy, buy young horses, uh, racing prospects, you know, buy stallions that are proven. Um, you know, it, it's kind of the antithesis of the commercial market because everybody wants the arrogate to the gun runner or, you know, whichever is the, you know, young commercial horse. And I'm sure next year it'll be, you know, the Omaha beaches and the city zips or I mean, right. city, zip, city of light and whatnot. But, the reality is when you look at the stats, you know, 5% of stallions make it, you know, and, and, you know, as much as everybody loves city of light and I'm a fan of his, you know, there's no guarantee that five years from now he'll be staying in Oklahoma for $4,500. You know what I mean? Sure. You know? And so when you're going to give the kind of money that, that, you know, Matt's talking about giving for a racing prospect, uh, there's just a whole lot more security when you're buying a horse who's by a stallion, who's, produced grade one winners already. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and and so I, you know, as far as a racehorse trainer, you know, 
to me, there's an added layer of security when you're buying a yearling from a proven stallion. And so that's, that's one of the things that we key in on. Um, but more importantly than that, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, um, I had a good friend tell me one time, you know, if you're hunting for elephants, you need to see signs of elephants. You need to see elephant dung, you know what I mean? And, and if you're trying to buy a fast horse, you know, I want to see signs of fast horses in, in the immediate pedigree. And, and I think a lot of times there are a lot of mares getting bred that, you know, I wouldn't want if they were a racehorse, you know, and, and, you know, to me, the only fair question to ask of a stallion or a mare is, can this horse reproduce itself? You know, it, it's not fair to ask a horse to produce something that's better than they were, but can this horse just reproduce itself? And so most stallions who were at stud, obviously were a stakes winner. And if they reproduce themselves, you'd be thrilled. Um, but if you ask that question about a lot of mares, uh, you know, they were unplaced. They were a maiden winner at three and made $28,000. Well, if she reproduces herself, do I want that full? You know what I mean? So I really try to key in on mares that were fast. Uh, and if, if they were unraced or unplaced, they have to have shown me they could throw a, a full or two that were fast uh, and preferably all three. Um, you know, so, so that's kind of where I start in the buyer's guide is going through just all the female pedigrees and uh, you know, mares that were not fast, who have thrown foals that were not fast, just immediately get get X'd off my list, no matter who the foal is by, or no matter how how deep the second pedigree was, or or whatever. So, that's kind of my my basis for a starting point. And obviously, with different clients, you have different budgets, and so you have mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, give and bend a little bit. Um, I, I think that after you create that list, uh, you know, you you actually go to the horse sale and you inspect them and. You know, I find that uh, Walter Hill and Meyer, who, who used to own Woodland Farm, had taught me this years ago, and I found it to be very generally true. Um, you know, if you start with a catalog book of 300 horses in a day, you'll go through the catalog pages and you'll mark 100 out of the 300 that are appropriate for you. You look at those 100, and out of that 100, there'll be 10 that you actually like. And of those 10, you can probably afford one. And I found I found that metric to be very very accurate and true, um, but you know as you go looking at horses, you know everybody wants a you know a perfect horse, and uh, you know it's kind of a, a chocolate and vanilla ice cream game. You know it's just your everybody's preference, but I think that's where the background on the racetrack really really kind of uh, helps me, so to speak. Is is just that. There's things that I can live with, you know, I mean, there's, and there's things that I can't live with. And, you know, if a horse toes in a little bit, I don't really mind that. If he toes out a little bit, I don't really mind that. Uh, I don't like back at the knee, uh, but I really want a perfect hind end. And that's more important to me than the front end. And, you know, I think that a lot of people focus on on the front end and kind of ignore the hind end. Um, you know, so, so those are kind of the things for me. And I don't really put a lot of stock in how they walk. Um you know, obviously I have the horses walk because I, you get a truer sense of what their confirmation is as they move uh, rather than standing there. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stand at the door of my office in the shed row and, you know, watch a graded stakes winner walk around the barn and they don't have a huge overstep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, this, this great big, huge flowing walk that everybody drools over. I don't really see a translation of that from the yearlings to production on the racetrack. Um, you know, so there's a, a lot of little things that everybody has their preferences. And, and it was, it was funny, you know, 
working these mayor sales uh, with, with, with David Wade and Scott Mallory and I, because we all had different things that, you know, we absolutely didn't like or liked. And, you know, we, we didn't always agree, but uh, you know, that's the beauty of uh, chocolate and vanilla ice cream. So. I'm sure too. And, and I love the angle that you spoke about of, being an active racehorse trainer because you, you see them every day and, and you have horses in your barn on all ends of the spectrum. You know, you mentioned a $5,000 claimer that started off with Matt at the beginning. And, and this is, I think a theme that I always try to go back to and remind myself of as well, that they're, they're going to have these flaws and the good ones really seem to, sometimes they're less flawed, but sometimes they're not. The good ones really seem to overcome it. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, the, the one thing that you can't, you can't discern standing there looking at a horse is what his heart is, you know, and, and good horses just overcome everything and, and want to compete and want to run. And, you know, the, the, the minute that somebody figures out a way to measure that in a racehorse prospect, you know, we'll all be rich and it'll be a real boring business, <laughs> you know, but uh, let me know when you find out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I won't tell anybody for a couple of years, at least, but get a couple <laughs> of them, you know, you know, I mean, really for me, the whole aspect of, of going to the horse sale is uh, just eliminating risk, you know, it, and there, there are a lot of reasons to buy a horse, but what are the reasons not to buy this horse? And, um, you know, trying to filter them down through those different risk categories, you know, you, you try to end up with a prospect that kind of checks all your boxes. But really what you're saying is, I think this one presents the less risk. Um, you know, and, and you just kind of go from there and, and, and see how it goes. I like to, uh, with the racing prospects, I feel like it's really important to, and, and I don't think you see a lot of people doing this at the horse sales, but mm-hmm. I want to go into the stall and put my hands on the horse in the stall and, and try to get a sense of how much class a horse has, you know, I, I, is the stall all tore up? Are they running the stall? Are they walking the stall? Um, you know, when I put my hands all over them and kind of check their acupuncture points, you know, do they tolerate that? Are they leery of me? Are, are they terrible about it? You know, because those are all things that, uh, you know, just kind of tell me, you know, this horse is going to do all right at the racetrack and this horse maybe really isn't meant for this, you know, because the good ones are all like that, you know, that, that they, they all have class. For sure. Mentally, some of them really stand up to it better than others, whether that's racing or, or the sales or anything. And, and like you said about the heart, I mean, you can tell, I, I totally agree. You, you can tell the ones that have the mental strength, the mental almost kind of fortitude immediately. And they seem to be the ones that really make the better resources overall. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know it's a, it's a crystal ball business. So. <laughs> For sure. Well, Phil, sensational stuff. Thank you so much uh, for coming on today and uh, sharing the story and best of luck to you and Matt and with all your new purchases and racing prospects and loved getting to hear your take on everything. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Gins, editor of ANZ Bloodstock News in Australia. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, really happy to have you along and looking forward to talking a little bit about the Australian sales scene with you tonight. Oh, I'm excited, Acacia. It's been uh, a long time since we've seen yeah. one another, but uh, it's going to be great to, to catch up and have a chat about uh, what is, at the moment, a really busy time for uh, bloodstock and sales down here in Australia. 
Yeah, for sure. Of course, the Magic Millions Gold Coast uh, yearling sale really to kick off the year. And I I feel like that sale, from what I can tell, really set the tone quite a bit. I mean, tell me a little bit just in kind of general terms what this sale is and what it kind of means as far as the overall, like I said, setting the tone for the rest of the sales this year in Australia. Yeah, it's the first of the big yearling sales. Um, obviously, our yearling sales at a different time to what you have in the States because, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, our breeding season is different. So, um, obviously, horses currently uh, would be the equivalent of where they'd be in July or so in uh, the U.S. because uh, they were mostly born August, September, October. Um, and so, Magic Millions is the first of the really big ones. Um, and from there, uh, you head to New Zealand, they've got Caraca coming up in a couple of weeks, and then back across to Australia where you have a string of English sales uh, leading with English Easter, which is probably our closest equivalent to uh, Keeneland September. Um, so Magic Millions, really the first of the, the big sales. And it is the uh, it is a sale that's renowned for producing a lot of precocious types. You get a lot of horses that are very forward. So um, yearlings that are going to, to start early as two-year-olds um, tend to go through the sale, hence why you get a lot of big spending uh, customers there. And also with Magic Millions, it's a bit more relaxed than a lot of the other sales. Um, it's held at the Gold Coast in Queensland uh, during the middle of summer. Um, a lot of people walking around in shorts and Panama hats. It's really quite an atmosphere as well. Uh, even in this year, um, when there were COVID restrictions, it was still um, quite something uh, for, for people who were there. Yeah, it kind of seemed like the place to be. Like, that's where the party is. It is. It's a big one, big party, and uh, obviously <laughs> this year not so many people there, but uh, mm-hmm. it was still quite a party from from what I heard. And uh, uh, look, uh, if you ever get the chance to go to the Magic Millions, it's definitely worthwhile. Um, you get a lot of mm-hmm. of international buyers there normally who come um, sort of as a as a holiday um, to get to escape the northern winter. You get a lot of uh, a lot of people from Europe, a lot of people from the states, and uh, I'm sure they'll be back as soon as travels back on the uh, radar. It definitely something on my bucket list. I've never been to Australia, but um, you mentioned some of the high spending, and it was actually a record seven days on the Gold Coast for the Magic Million sale. Over $212 million Australian dollars sold, the highest grossing yearling sale in Southern Hemisphere history. That's pretty amazing, especially, Andrew, considering we are still in the middle of a pandemic. It is, and uh, given all the uncertainty of 2020, um, you know, you had so many different uh, sales platforms that were being used, a lot were being sent online or they were being held um, in front of uh, in front of limited uh, crowds. And uh, th- there was definitely concern going into the sale that it wasn't going to hold up to the level that it did. But uh, not only did it hold up, uh, the demand, especially at the top end, was really quite strong. And even through that, that sort of middle section of, uh, you know, the, the 200, 300, 400, 500,000 sort of dollar lots, um, there was still plenty of demand there. And so it was really quite a, a good sale for uh, Magic Millions. I think uh, they they were just in shock at how strong the market was. And it bodes well for the um, sales coming up, uh, especially Karaka in New Zealand and uh, then English Classic, English Easter down here. 
You saw Tom Magner from Coolmore, Australia, buying the top couple. Of course, uh, no surprise seeing Coolmore active on that that higher end, too. Um, but tell me a little bit, because one of the conversations I've been having, I think has been a theme uh, on my show, has been looking at some of the newer stallions versus some of the kind of established ones, so to speak. Um, I Am Invincible, the leading sire of two-year-olds in Australia. He really seemed to kind of be one of the storylines of this sale. And he's been a storyline probably mm-hmm. for a, a few years in terms of the way that he's really developed. Um, he yeah. was a horse who uh, wasn't a Group 1 winner, but he he was Group 1 place down here. Um, a very brilliant horse uh, on the racetrack, but just didn't get to live up to that potential um, in terms of what his race record suggests. But, um, you know, he was standing at Yarraman Park Stud and he's, uh, his fee had dropped after three seasons to... Um, I think it was $10,000, $9,000, $10,000, which is extraordinary given uh, when you see what his, his progeny are both doing now on the track mm-hmm. but also what they're fetching in the sales ring. Um, he's, been, he's been an incredible story over, over a number of years, and it was just another chapter um, of him going to another level with his, uh, his progeny so sought after in the sales ring. Um, he's, he's now the, uh, the leading stallion down here in many respects. Um, he hasn't won a, a, a size premiership down here yet, but uh, I think it's only a matter of time. And uh, when you look at the number of uh, good mares that are going to him, he's uh, definitely got a bright future ahead. Are there any kind of newer stallions that you've seen on the market that you're intrigued by or that have really garnered quite a bit of attention at the sales that you've noticed? Um, I mean, there's horses that have been there for a couple of years or who have had, have had crops for, for a couple of years now, like Deep Fields, who are really um, starting to get more and more attention. Um, even uh, size like uh, Written Tycoon, who's been around for, for many, many years now, um, you know, you're looking at him probably in his 10th year, but it's only been the last two or three years that he's really got the sales, um, the sales respect that, that he's probably deserved. Um, of the newer stallions, uh, there was a, a big uh, story down here with Sharla, um, mm. who, who shuttles out here, uh, getting the Magic Millions two-year-old classic winner in Shakiro. Um, that's sort of the first of our really big juvenile features in Australia. And um, so that boat, uh, that, that yeah, saw a lot of interest for uh, people in buying um, those Sharlas. But, uh, I mean, it's one of those things that at the moment, uh, you know, it's, it's, there, there's so much money in the market in the marketplace that um, people are, are really willing to buy anything if you can find a good physical a good mm-hmm. uh, a, a well put together horse um, they'll, they'll attract any sort of money really yeah for sure all about kind of finding that that good balance you know of all of the things that you're looking for and um, I, I always enjoy following some of those stallions that you liked seeing on the racetrack and then seeing how they do as sires and what kind of traits they pass on, whether it's the precocity, the speed, the endurance, whatever it may be. And, you know, obviously there's, there, there are outliers of some of them that really don't kind of catch on, but I mean, there's some of them, you know, for us, we, we see like American Pharaoh and I know there were a couple of American Pharaohs sold in this sale as well seeing a triple crown winner, a sensational horse going on to be a stallion. I mean, they're, they're, I'm sure you've seen some great examples of that too, of horses you've been able to follow and then become really top stallions. Absolutely. I mean, for me, um, I will never forget a horse like So You Think who um, has, you know, produced uh, a plethora of group, of, uh, group or grade one winners now. 
Um, and I was lucky enough to see him debut at Rose Hill when he was a two-year-old. And I saw him at his last start when he won the Prince of Wales at Royal Ascot, um, running the, you know, it's two one two Cox plates, running the Melbourne Cup and the Breeders' Cup Classic and everything in between. And uh, so to see him go on, um, you know, he was a very handsome horse. Um, always mm-hmm. had this incredible, this incredible fringe. That was sort of his his uh, <laughs> his known trait. And it's amazing how many of his sons, especially, have that same fringe. It's that that's something that's really cool. The eye. Uh, um, but yeah, you're right about how how you see you see what they go on to to produce in the breeding barn and it's it's fascinating to see which ones are able to catch on and which ones are able to to really stamp their progeny yeah i love seeing those traits carried on i i had not noticed a fringe being passed on but i love it and i'm definitely (laughs) gonna look for that um as far as the consigners do go arrowfield stud sold 45 head at this sale um have you seen just kind of some of the traditional bigger names really just continuing to flourish? Were there any sort of big stories as far as outfits that were able to sell quite well um, in the recent sales? Um, not particularly, not, not really any outliers. Arrowfield's always um, one who really does have um, those incredible um, yearlings going through. They've always got a, a great draft um, and and that was uh, the case as always. Sledmere Stud, another um, big producer down here, again producing some uh, incredible looking uh, lots and uh, getting uh, getting uh, just deserves uh, just deserves for what they they put through. Um, but no, look, it was it was very much uh, a, a traditional sale in that sense that the uh, mm-hmm. the big players producing big drafts and getting the uh, getting the the uh, you know the the spoils that they they probably deserve for producing such uh, such good athletes. I wanted to ask a little bit about your story as well as you are very accustomed to covering racing, not just in Australia and New Zealand, but really worldwide. And you and I met a few years back in Hong Kong, actually, where you worked for quite a time and um, international racing. I I don't know anybody that's really more just well-versed overall. What is it for you about the the world of horse racing that's so attractive? I find uh, international horse racing just the most incredible puzzle uh, to, to figure out because it is the same sport. We're dealing with the same sport. We're dealing with horses. We're dealing with jockeys. We're dealing with trainers. We're dealing with um, all of the same aspects in each jurisdiction, but they're all presented differently and they're all, um, they're, they're all just completely different in so many ways. Um, you know, for, inter- it, it, for instance, um, you know, obviously Hong Kong, a very, very small jurisdiction in terms of you've only got the two tracks, um, you know, you've got a, a 1,300 horse population and they won't race it, race anywhere bar those two tracks except for those those elite horses that are able to travel to a Dubai or to, to a Breeders' Cup. Um, and so, so, again, very different to somewhere like Australia or the States where, you know, horses might race uh, one weekend in, in uh, on the East Coast and then uh, you mm-hmm. might see them a couple of weeks later on the West Coast. You know, it happens it happens down here as well. So, so it's just very interesting uh, for me to try and figure that all out, to try and um, sort of see that uh, that difference between um, 
different jurisdictions and also trying to, to see the globalization of racing in that mm-hmm. um, now there is a lot of interconnectivity between all of those jurisdictions. You see, um, for instance, for, for instance, um, through the Magic Million sale, you know, uh, one of the top lots was by Kingman, uh, who has never, mm-hmm. never shuttled to Australia, but, um, you know, still, still uh, has a, has a horse down here or, um, again, another, another high price lot was um, out of uh, uh, my Casadori. So, you know, um, again, like, uh, you know, an, uh, an American mayor um, who's now come to mm-hmm. Australia and uh, obviously is now now based down here. So you, you see all that sort of interconnectivity and it really just fascinates me trying to keep on top of all of that, um, something I hope to keep doing for, for a while yet. I very much agree. Got a chance to see a few Kingmans up at Saratoga this year too, which, you know, not always something that you expect and getting a chance to see a few um, from some of those international stallions as well. And um, I had mentioned it at the top of the shows. I'm not as familiar with some of the Australian bloodstock as maybe some of the European and of course in the US. So this is a bit of a learning experience for me too, but I love how you described it as a puzzle because it really is. And you can go back through generations and generations and just see the influence and at the end of the day, you never really know what you're going to get in a horse. And I know you're familiar with the racing side of things too, having managed syndicates in the past too. That's right. Yeah. I've been uh, lucky enough to do uh, do a a few different things. And uh, actually I've got a new role uh, that I'm going to be starting in a couple of weeks, which is going to be uh, uh, managing syndicates for a, uh, for for one of the big operations down here. So that's going to be, that's going to be good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, it is so interesting again to try and figure out where every little bit fits in and how they, how they interact with one another. Um, But again, like from a breeding perspective, you go through the, the catalog of Magic Millions, um, probably even more so at, at uh, English Easter. And it's amazing just to see how pedigrees are really influenced by so many different parts of the world. And you'll see, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've seen, I've seen uh, in a couple of recent catalogs, um, Irish uh, group one winners have have half sisters in the sale who their their family traces back from Japan and then from America. <laughs> like it just it, you know the, the, that's that's the thing the 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 world of racing really is still very um, separate in terms of how um, each jurisdiction operates, but it's also very interconnected. Mm-hmm. So being able to understand the different parts and how they work locally, but also on an international scale, I think is really crucial for for racing fans and for people that want to work in racing going forward. Yeah, for sure. It's it's a big, small world, so to speak. And you having traveled the world and worked in a lot of different roles, I have to ask, is there one particular race or or horse that really stands out in your mind that's really something very special to you that you feel like people, maybe if they're new to the game or, or interested in racing, that like that kind of memory really is what racing's all about to you? Oh, that's a really good question because uh, <laughs> there are there are a lot of things that I could say. I mean, for me as a racing fan, the two that probably stand out as really, uh, as I feel really being privileged to have been there to to have seen it. Um, I was there when Frankel won the Queen Anne Stakes by wow. eleven lengths. Um, that was his. That that's considered you know the the best performance of all time by time form. Um, that was the race that gave him the 147 time form rating. And I've never seen a horse move like that. I've never seen a horse barely touch the ground. Um, just just the most incredible action. Um, I, I, it's, it's so hard to explain just what it looked like. It really was poetry in motion. 
Um, and I mean, I'm sure most racing fans will have seen it. If they haven't, definitely one to watch if you're trying to, to understand the UK. Um, for me, Winx's third Cox Plate is really, really mm. special. Uh, I was lucky to be at her fourth Cox Plate as well. Um, and I was there the day that she retired. But um, the third Cox Plate was, for me, even more special because um, she was trying to equal uh, Kingston Town, who had done the feat of three Cox Plates before. Um, and it was the first time that in a Cox Plate that she looked like she was potentially going to be beaten um, at the top of the straight. So that was really special. Um, but look, there are, there are so many you can do uh, to, to look at it. For me as a racing fan, for instance, uh, I wasn't trackside, but watching the Japan Cup last year for me was everything that's great about racing. You had a, a tearaway leader. Um, you had three really top-notch horses in Armandai, uh, Contrail and Daring Tack. Um, Contrail won their Triple Crown. Uh, Daring Tack won their Triple Tiara, um, the, the Phillies Triple Crown. And um, Armandai obviously travelled the world and was the most successful Japanese horse of all time. So, you know, to have three such good horses going there and fighting it out, that to me is what racing's about. Um, it was just, it was magical. And I think if anyone hasn't seen racing outside of their own um, backyard, that's definitely where I'd start. Well, now I'm pretty jealous about some of the horses you've gotten to see live. Andrew, I can't say thank you enough. Award-winning journalist, editor for the time being. Best of luck with the new role. And thank you again for taking the time. Thanks, Akasha. So pleased to welcome in my next guest, Jacob West, Bloodstock agent, and uh, certainly someone that we've seen in the news a lot uh, recently coming up with the Pegasus World Cup turf race on January 23rd as Colonel Liam, one of three in there for trainer Todd Fletcher, purchased for $1.2 million as a two-year-old by Jacob West. And Jacob, I'm sure a lot of excitement leading up in the next few days with the Pegasus, but thanks so much for taking some time to join me today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about Colonel Liam, as he obviously was a a high purchase price at a two-year-old sale, the OBS April sale, two-year-old in training, as as a matter of fact. Tell me a little bit about what you first saw from him at that two-year-old sale, of course, as we do get to see the two-year-olds breeze before you buy them as well. Yeah, there was a little bit of hype uh, around him coming into the sale. You would, you know, as all bloodstock agents do, we all talk and stuff. And you had heard that Kieran Dunn had a son of Liam's map and he was a big, pretty horse and a good mover and had shown some ability on his home track with people that had been there. So when I went to the sale, you kind of keep that filed in the back of your brain and go there and you see the horse breeze and he works in 20 and four and gallops out big the way that he did. And, you you know, you kind of get excited. I mean, he had, in my opinion, one of those breezes that just sticks into your brain. I mean, there's other horses that have sold at the two-year-old in training sales that you remember where you were when they breezed. I can tell you where I was sitting in the grandstand when competitive edge and carpe diem and acopoco munnings and those types of horses that had gone through the two-year-old sale. You know, they had spectacular breezes. And in my opinion, I thought Colonel Liam had one of those breezes. You know, he came to the pole in good shape, went down the lane, moved incredibly well, galloped out big. Then, you know, you go back to the barn and you get to see him the next day or day after whatever it was when the breeze show had ended. And when you saw him on the end of the shank, you couldn't just help but get excited about him. He had a big pedigree to back it up to the second dam being Wonder again, who obviously was just sensational. I mean, it's kind of one of those rare things, right, where you're looking for the speed on the track, 
plus the pedigree, plus the physical. There's there's a lot of things that those two-year-old sales to take into account. Yeah, no question. In uh, Colonel Liam's case, it ended up resulting in a $1.2 million score for the waiver tree team. And, um, you know, obviously I'm just grateful that I have owners like Robert and Luana Lowe that, you know, trust me and have the confidence in me that spend that type of money on one of these horses. But yeah, I mean, in his case, he had the physical, he had the pedigree, he had the performance on the track, you know, so to speak, he, you know, the term that I hate the most in our industry is he checked all the boxes, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, like I said, it, you just have a lot of confidence in buying off of a guy like Karen Dunn when he steps in behind you when you're looking at one and gives you high positive remarks, you know, you kind of, again, you, you make note of it. And, uh, and, and in this case, it worked out well. Yeah, I've gotten to go to Waver Tree uh, where Kieran Dunn preps his his horses for the sale and just an amazing facility that he has. Had you been to maybe his farm or any of the other farms leading up to any of the sales? Is that something that you do in preparation uh, when you're working uh, for your for your clients? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think, you know, getting to see those horses at their, you know, at their training facility in their stall around something that they're comfortable with uh, is obviously important. Um, you know, you, you do get to kind of see them in their own backyard and you make notes of what you see and how they train. And, you know, you also, you got to listen to the guys that are training them. If you trust them enough and you feel like they're pointing you in the right direction, you got to make note of that also. So going to the farms and doing on-farm visits and inspections is very important to me. I mean, next week, I'm actually going to be doing that all, all next week in Ocala, going around and kind of doing the tour of Ocala and seeing everything leading up only, you know, the horses that were bought as yearlings going to the track and obviously the sales horses. It's that time of year, right? As uh, we all start looking looking for the next star, the future, so to speak. Um, wanted to circle back a little bit to the two-year-old sales in particular with, with the breeze ups. There are obviously a lot of different features and, and aids as far as looking at some of the breezes that you have. Are there any of those things that you use? Maybe it's getting notes on the breezes, strides, a stride analysis, any of those things like that that you take into account as well? Yeah, I mean, it's when you're at the two year old sales, there are a lot of, you know, kind of ingredients that go that make the soup type thing. But, um, you know, there, you have the added value of seeing the horses on the track and how they perform on the track, which is obviously huge. Um, I am as personally, a physical over pedigree guy. Um, I view the pedigree as it helps you appraise a horse and what it's probably going to cost. But I would much rather try to go by the physical type that, you know, you see in, in, in the stallion, uh, the horses that go on to be stallions or even the big fillies that sell, you know, in the November sales. And, and you try to find that type. I mean, they do come in all shapes and forms and sizes, but there are certain characteristics that you look for. Um, and especially at the two-year-old sales, I think, you know, you can basically take the pedigree catalog, you know, kind of thing and throw it in the trash. I mean, you're, you're going to be looking for that. For that horse that gets over the track well, that vets well, that, like I said, you buy from a consigner that you have a lot of trust in. And I think that's more important than the pedigree. The pedigree, when you go back and study it, should be one of those things that just kind of gives you an idea of what the horse might cost at the end of the day. But stride analysis and all that stuff, it does come into play. I mean, you, you know, we've got the videos and we can watch the videos. Um, we can, you know, see how they move. I mean, we've even gotten into now you can slow it down and put it into slow motion and go frame by frame. Um, you know, you're paying attention to the horse, you're paying attention to the rider. 
you've got the gallop out times and how a horse, you know, went around the turns and, you know, we've got guys in the chute and we've got guys on the turn make, making notes of airway and equipment. And so, so it sometimes is a little bit probably overboard. Um, you know, you might want to try to simplify it a little bit, but at the end of the day, like I said, it's all got to be ingredients that go into the pot that kind of make the final soup uh, type of deal. I guess that's kind of horse racing in a nutshell, right? Here's a 100%. ton of information. See what you can do with it. Yeah, exactly. Vinny Viola said it best uh, not too long ago when he first got into the game. He felt like he was drinking water out of a fire hose with all the information <laughs> that was coming at him. You know, and that's that's the truth. I mean, it's there's so many different factors, so many different things that you got to take notice of. Um, but when they all line up and the stars align, you you feel pretty confident, and you, and you go in there and you bid with confidence. Are there certain physical attributes that you are maybe a little bit more forgiving of? And then on the other side of the coin, are there certain attributes that you absolutely must have? I think the most, for me, the most important aspect of any horse is how they move. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I think too many people get caught up into, do they toe in, toe out, you know, what the, you know, certain things with their knees or their, how their neck ties in, you know, the size, the, you know, the, the strength of their shoulder, the strength of their hip. You know, when I was at TaylorMade for nine and a half years, we sold multiple grade one winning fillies, you know, in those November sales. And then when you get to go around here in central Kentucky and you get to go look at all the big stallions and the grade one performers and champions of all levels, I think the one common thing that you see is that they're all good movers. They might not have just huge walks, but they all move well. They, they, you know, they come out of their shoulder. Well, they step well behind. Um, you know, like I said, I think anybody, I can teach anybody what toe in toe out means. Mm-hmm. I can teach anybody what good confirmation through somebody through their knees, what that looks like. But I think when you can <clears throat> really get it distilled down to how a horse moves, uh, that's, that's the most important thing to me. There aren't really too many things that I'd say, Oh, you can't buy a horse that has a certain, characteristic i mean you know if you're looking for a dirt horse you you know historically speaking you want a horse with a nice strong hip good hind leg and you know good good frame good size historically speaking you know two-turn horses are good size horses um sprinters might be a little smaller blockier stronger might not walk as well might not move as well but you know they, they have you can see why they would be fast type thing but in general there isn't something that i say oh you can't buy a horse with that um from now kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth when i do go back and look at a pedigree i i do believe eddie rosen who's a pedigree consultant with the rapoli team he you know years ago he taught me a term that i think makes a lot of sense he says in our business there are there are proven failures you know a mare can be a proven failure she might have been bred to the best stallions out there in the world year after year and she's never thrown a, a runner so why does that give you any sort of of idea that this particular horse is going to be the one that makes it. Um, and I do, and I do believe in that a little bit, you know, I, I do believe that we do have proven failures in our business. So you try to stay away from that, but in general, you just try to go by that, that nice athlete. I think you brought up a really interesting point too, about um, being able to go to some of the farms and seeing some of the great stallions. And I, I, 
strongly recommend for anybody that has the opportunity if they're in Kentucky to to see some of the greats, you know, now standing in, in their second part of their career, because you can see some of them have those physical flaws, so to speak. And yet they were sensational on the racetrack and have passed on the speed, precocity, whatever it is to their offspring. So I, I guess it really is, you said, you know, you ticked all the boxes. It's a yeah. terrible term because sometimes it, it doesn't always apply. Exactly. And I mean, I think a lot of that too comes into play with, you know, the management of the horse, um, mm-hmm. you know, where they go to be broken and, and learn those, those early on uh, experiences of the racetrack and then the hands that they end up in as a trainer and, or maybe even, you know, the, the kind of the, the goals of the owner, you know, you force a, 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 a turf horse to be a dirt horse and vice versa, you know, um, there, there might be some things like that that come along to play. Um, and, it, but I think at the end of the day, if you just do what's right best by the horse, you put them in the best hands that you possibly can, you get the best jockeys to ride them, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can take a lot of those unknown factors out. Um, but yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's, there's been plenty of high dollar horses that haven't made it, um, for various reasons and, and, and we just try to limit those, those kind of variables as best as we can. Well, you mentioned uh, turf and dirt and surface switches. That brings me back to Colonel Liam, who started his career on the dirt and then seems to have really just flourished on the turf. Did you ever have an inkling that the grass might be his preferred surface? You know, when when we bought the Colonel Liam, you know, going back to seeing him physically, pedigree-wise, you know, obviously the second Dan being Wonder again, who was one of the most incredible turf horses, you know, turf fillies that we've seen in quite some time, you know, but he was by Liam's map, who obviously was a dirt horse. He was out of a Bernardini mare, which was obviously dirt. And then physically speaking to me, he looks like a dirt horse. He's a big, strong horse, good mover. You know, he's kind of that narrow frame build uh, that looks like a big two-turn horse. And he had those aspects. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I guess the old saying comes true. You can't outrun your pedigree. And and he, you know, obviously having the influence of wonder again in there, when we saw him make his first start, he made it on the lead. He did it easily. Louis Saez was riding him that day down at Gulfstream. He carried fast fractions, you know, all the way around the turn there going a mile at Gulfstream. And then kind of when he hit the quarter pole, you could kind of see him just kind of falter just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And per capita was a horse that he was running against, came down the lane and, and passed him. They obviously came over on top of him. We got, we ran second, but got officially finished first. Um, but, you know, Todd had kind of said to me, ah, oh, we expected him to finish a little bit better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, came back a month later at Gulfstream, ran in a one X and it was the same deal. He kind of showed that early speed going two turns a mile in the 16th. And just at the end, you just didn't see him finish. So Todd kind of said, listen, you know, there is some turf here in the family. Let's let's at least explore the option. Let's get him up to Saratoga where we can work him on the grass. So we got him up there, had to put a couple works into him. We breezed him on the grass. And Todd called me like after the breeze and was like, I think we might have found this horse's calling. His, you know, his work here was very, very good. Then it was, you know, let's go into a 1X up here. Let's see how he runs. He wins up there against older horses. He runs a seven on the sheets, on the Ragazin sheets coming out of the race. And it was like, whoa, you know, he got a hundred buyer. And we kind of knew like, well, we always knew he was brilliant, but now we put him on the preferred surface that he probably enjoys. And now let's go have some fun with him. 
I would say that win at Saratoga, his first turf race, I I remember I got to interview Todd after the race, and he was excited too because he trained the stallion, of course, Liam's map, and Todd Pletcher just has this amazing record with creating stallions, uh, which I always really get a kick out of. And seeing this horse really kind of find like you said, his true calling, so impressive. Then right into even deeper waters in the Saratoga Derby, which if you look at Trackus and watch the race back, arguably he really ran a sensational race that day despite finishing fourth. He did, you know, popping out of the gate. He got kind of squeezed there. Javier, Javier Castellano was riding him and he got squeezed and Javier did an incredible job of just letting the horses get away from him, let him get his feet underneath him. He dipped down to the rail and then going down the backside, you could just tell he was pulling, 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 and he had to get him up into position, kind of fanned out wide, uh, and came with a big run. I mean, he got beat three quarters of a length for it all, and obviously ran against some very good horses and domestic mm-hmm. spending and gofu and those types. So, you know, he, like you said, the track is kind of t- maybe told the tale of the tape on uh, on what kind of performance it actually was. Uh, and then we gave him some time off after that. And it was not from any particular reason. It was just that he had kind of campaigned four big races back to back to back. And it was just kind of one of those times that we might want to press the pause button, take a deep breath and then bring him back. Um, and then we ended up in the tropical park derby. And since that Tropical Park Derby where he, he got kind of the big win that it seemed he needed as far as the turf does go, what have you been seeing from him leading into the Pegasus? As obviously kind of uh, Todd Pletcher, as I mentioned at the top, loaded with three horses in there. But I think Colonel Liam looks like he's kind of the buzz horse, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, he's put in two solid works since mm-hmm. then. I mean, in typical Todd Pletcher fashion, you know, two weeks after he he runs, you work him back, put in a nice half mile, and then you put in five eights into him, and he's done everything right. I mean, uh, it's kind of one of those deals that Todd said he's trained just, you know, he's come out of it just as good as he went into the Tropical Park Derby, and, you know, it's going to be a tough field, obviously, anytime you walk into the starting gate of a grade one, especially, you know, a race like the Pegasus Turf. Uh, you line up against whatever it's going to end up being, 8, 9, 10, 11 other horses. Uh, you know, those horses are coming into it the right way also. That's why they're, you know, <laughs> that's why they're running in grade one. And uh, nobody's really taking a shot, so to speak. You know, they want it, they're there because they want to win it. So, you know, it's going to be a tough race, but, you know, we're coming into it well. Horses training well. And uh, hopefully we get the right trip and, uh, and, 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 you know, solidify the win maybe. And what would that mean to you as somebody that, Got him at a two-year-old sale, obviously with the big purchase price, but just seeing him really come along, how special would it be to see him get a grade one in a race like the Pegasus, as you mentioned, which obviously holds a little bit more weight, especially this time of year? Yeah, I mean, as a bloodstock agent, I think it all boils down to you're doing it for your owners. You know, they're leaning into you for your expertise and your knowledge, and that's what it would mean more for me. I mean, Robert and Luana Lowe are some of the most incredible people that God's put on the face of this earth. I mean, they love their animals. They love the sport. They love the camaraderie, the competition, everything about it. And it, it just means more to me that, you know, they could get in the winter circle and win big races uh, because they're like family to me. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. they were my first customers and clients when I first got started, they backed me with nothing but the ultimate uh, kind of support and confidence and, you know, it, that's more along the lines of what it means to me. And then obviously for the horse too, because he's just such a genuine horse. I mean, uh, it would, it would be great to, you know, 
put a notch into his belt like this and uh, show up. And, and it, it just would be a, a whole thing. Obviously, with Todd and his, his whole crew, it, it's big for them, too, because they've managed this horse. And the care and the love that those people put into the, these horses is unbelievable. So anytime you can, you know, be the facilitator of buying a horse that brings enjoyment to that many type of people, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. rewarding. And Robert and Luana Lowe, you've had quite a bit of success with them. And you mentioned a long-term relationship. How did you first come in contact with, with Mr. and Mrs. Lowe and create a relationship that you have now? Yeah, Mr. when I was at TaylorMade Sales, uh, they were big clients of theirs on the sales mm-hmm. side of things. Um, so when I was there, I kind of hatched this idea that we would try to go buy some horses because I knew that they had a deep love of racing. Mm-hmm. Um so I just presented an idea to them of letting me, you know, go and buy some horses uh, for them. And, you know, they did, they, they kind of, they didn't open up the purse strings for me at first type, so to speak, <laughs> you know, they kind of tested the waters and we had some good luck starting out, you know, with the first couple that I bought. And then it was just gradually after that, you know, they, it was just, they had more confidence in me and, and the, what I wanted to do. And then we had a horse like Magna Moon that mm-hmm. kind of was our, was our banner horse and, that horse meant so much to Mr. and Mrs. Lowe winning the Rebel in the Arkansas Derby at Oakland Park, which was their home track and mm-hmm. a track that they've been going to for a hundred years. And it just was one of those that it's that that horse solidified, you know, our relationship and my abilities of buying them horses and the program that I put in front of them. And then we've we've just had a lot of success since then. Racing is incredible in that it gives you the highs and the lows all in the span. I feel like just a few seconds, even sometimes. What do you think has been one of the most rewarding parts for you of being a Bloodstock agent? Like I said, I mean, I think it's just, you know, like a small kind of example is is Mr. and Mrs. Lowe winning at Oakland Park, having a horse like Magna Moon win the, the Rebel in the Arkansas Derby. I mean, to see you know, two people like them, they have everything that they could ever want in life. And, and they, they help everybody uh, that, you know, like they help so many people and they're just so gracious and, you know, like, but to give them an opportunity to do something like that with the horse that I had bought and to see them, you know, act like almost children, like the, the excitement that they had, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the, the road that that horse took us on uh, it was incredible. And, all, all the other clients that I'm uh, associated with, it's it's all very similar. And that's the what's incredible about this game is, you know, for the moment that that horse loads into the starting gate and breaks out to when he hits the finish line, you know, there's so much craziness going on in the world and maybe personal stuff or business stuff or whatever it is. Uh, you kind of forget about all that for, you know, roughly two minutes. You It all kind of goes to the back burner and you just are focused on that horse and your horse and, and the excitement that comes along with it. And when that horse puts his head in front and uh, comes down the lane and you got a shot at winning, I mean, it's unlike anything else in the world. So when you can be a part of that, it's uh, it, like I said, it's the ultimate reward. Well, it seems like Colonel Liam is taking you on another exciting journey. Best of luck to Mr. and Mrs. Lowe and to you as well, Jacob West. Thank you so much for joining me today. I loved getting a chance to pick your brain a little bit too. No, I appreciate it. And thank you very much. And uh, continue to do what you do. You're, you're doing an incredible job and in facilitating the sport and bringing new people in and educating. So keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Thank you so much. Awesome. I really appreciate that. Yep. All thank right. You.
And that will do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. A huge thank you to my sensational guests today. I really enjoyed getting to pick their brains and hear some different angles of, about some different sales too. So we're really just scratching the surface here on In the Ring and I'm really thankful to have you all along for the ride. As always, if you have any suggestions of people you think you may want to hear from or a topic that you think might be interesting, please let me know on social media. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you next time.